Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In the 1500s, scholars in northern Italy began questioning the traditional doctrine of the Trinity. Before long, the Inquisition forced these burgeoning Italian biblical Unitarians to flee, resulting in the spread of their ideas to other parts of Europe. The two most significant groups that emerged were the Polish Brethren and the Unitarian Church of Transylvania. In this lecture, you'll learn about this interesting, though typically overlooked, chapter of church history. This is Lecture 6 of a History of Christianity class called 500, From Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 121, The Sassinian Movement. Number 6, The Sassinian Movement. I wanted to start off with this statement by George Williams, where he says, not only psychopanicheism, that's the sleep of the dead, (laughs) psychopanicheism, but also anti-Trinitarianism, was to find its fullest ecclesial expression in Polish Sassanianism and Hungarian Unitarianism. Did you catch that? That's saying that in the Polish group and in the Hungarian group, you get together the sleep of the dead and the one God. Now let me tell you, if you have the sleep of the dead, chances are you've got the kingdom too. Because if you're dead until the resurrection and Jesus is coming back, then usually you also have the kingdom of God idea paired with that as opposed to heaven. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Not only psychopanicheism, but also anti-Trinitarianism was to find its fullest ecclesial expression in Polish Sassinianism and in Hungarian Unitarianism. The leaders of these two parallel and closely interrelated movements were Italians, were palpably dependent upon Italians. That's why I said before, if you're Italian, Polish, or Hungarian, you're going to like this one. If you were Spanish, I should have said, you would have liked the last one, because Michael Servetus was Spanish, and Claude of Savoy was French. So we're we're hitting at least a few ethnicities here tonight uh, in our way. Uh, Matt Elton's going to share with us about Asian Christianity in a couple weeks here. And so uh, the Asians will have something to rally behind. But uh, anyhow, three things I want to cover. Number one, Italian roots. Number two, Polish brethren. Number three, Transylvanian Unitarians. Ah, ah, ah. Transylvania is, in fiction, the place of the vampires. But in reality, it's just a piece of land that Hungary and Romania have been fighting over for a long time. And it's currently under Romanian control, but mostly Hungarians live there. And so it's a piece of land in modern-day Romania, Transylvania. And so those are the three things. Italian roots, Polish brethren, and Transylvanian Unitarians. Here is Marsiglio Ficino, or Marsilio Ficino, who died in the year 1499, and he subordinated the son to the father. Now, this is just one example of several different people. There are many different people, especially in northern Italy in the late 1400s and the early 1500s, that are starting to question the doctrine of the Trinity in the universities. Cities like Padua and Venice and a couple of others, these debates start happening. Now, part of this might be due to the fact that in 1492, Isabella of Spain kicked all the Jews out 
And those Jews asked the, the Pope in Italy if they could relocate there. And they said, we'll pay. And the Pope said, well, Jesus was a Jew. You could come. And so you have a lot of Jews coming into Italy. And suddenly in northern Italy, you start getting these Jewish ideas about Jesus that are almost like excessively Jewish in the sense that they're denying even the virgin birth. And this whole idea is coming out in this uh, early 16th century. But anyhow, I have a statement about this guy. According to George Williams, Ficino made bold to translate verbum as sermo, or verbum is how they would say it, I guess. Uh, therefore, sloughing off the philosophically freighted conception of Christ as the eternal word, logos, in John 1.1, 1, 1, as the mind and instrument of God, and substituting the idea of Christ as merely the voice of God. Although Ficino, basing his thought allegedly on Paul, wrote of approaching the preached sermo with the same reverence as the Eucharistic corpus or body, he had started a train of thought that would equate the word with the prophetic box or voice of the Old Testament, and even with rational meditation and literary scripta, scripture, and which would inevitably render philosophically difficult the received formulation of the Logos Son as consubstantial with the Father. Ficino is a good example of somebody who's doing the linguistic study of the Bible and arguing about which Latin word best correlates to the Greek word in John 1.1 when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do we think of that as the word sermo, or verbum, or vox, or scripta, and figuring out that linguistic difference, philological difference, so that they can get to the accuracy of the matter as clearly as possible. And so he's an example of what's going on in the, uh, the late 1400s. By the 1540s, we have a, a kind of a society happening in a city called Vicenza. It's a city that had a strong Unitarian church, and uh, there were a number of Unitarian principles that they adopted. There was a council in 1550 in the city of Venice where they specifically denounced the doctrine of the Trinity. And this came to the attention of the Inquisition, and they come and they start arresting people, and the way the Inquisition functions is they arrest, torture, until you give them names of other people, and then either kill you or release you, and then they go arrest the other people, and so it's a way to, to ferret out anybody that's deviant belief. And so what happens is these, these, a lot of these northern Italians scatter, they migrate, they go to Switzerland, they go to Poland, they go to Hungary, they go to the Netherlands, and they bring their ideas with them. One of these two guys is a guy named Lelio Sozzini, nice Italian name, or Lelius Socinus is the Latin name for him, 1525 to 1562. He's a very high-level person. He has some wealth, has some status. He's enthusiastic. He is theologically inquisitive. He loves asking people hard questions and getting you to answer these questions. Uh, he went to Switzerland. He traveled all around in Germany. And he was even there uh, when Calvin was in the midst of persecuting Servetus. He wrote a letter to Calvin about the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm not going to say much more about him other than he visited Poland 
we're going to get to Poland, and that's number two. First, we have Italian roots, then Polish brother, and then the Transylvanian Unitarians. In 1551, he went to Poland. But eventually, this movement of one God believers gets known as Socinians. And so he's the first Socinus, Laelius Socinus, or Laelio Socini, if you want his Italian name. And then his nephew, Fausto Socini, is really more the influential one of the two. So you've got the uncle Socinus and the nephew Socinus, Lelio and Faustus, or Fausto. Fausto goes eventually to Romania, and he, he joins in over there. He goes to Poland, and he goes to Transylvania, both of these places. And he had a very significant influence. He was br brilliant, had a very persuasive character to him. And as of the 17th century, which would be uh, another 100 years down the line, or just about the time he died, they started calling these people Socinians after Fausto Socini. So that's, that's about all I'm going to say about the Italian roots. And let's now move on to the Polish Brethren because I know more about them. <laughs> okay? And so the Polish Brethren were a group of Christians that started in 1565, and they were all kicked out of Poland in 1658. So they start in 1565, and they leave in 1658. In Poland, it was a gentleman by the name of Peter Gnesius, 1525 to 1573, that really got things started there. The uh, church in Poland was also known as the Minor Reformed Church. They like to be called the Polish Brethren. They actually just like to be called Brethren or Christians. That's what they preferred. Uh, outside of Poland, they're all often called Socinians. Peter Gnesius, he was sent by his parents to a monastery. I don't know what he did, but he got sent to the monastery. I don't know if that means he was a good boy or a bad boy, but he got sent to the monastery. And surprise, surprise, he became a priest. He studied at the University of Padua, which is a university in northern Italy and graduated with a doctorate in philosophy. So he's an educated man. In those days, only wealthy people tended to get educated because it cost a lot of money. While a gentleman named Matteo Gribaldi was teaching, this Peter Gnesius converted to Protestantism, and he pioneered Anabaptism in Poland. So he brings Protestantism, and specifically the Anabaptist beliefs, up to Poland with him from northern Italy. Oh, and so one of the things he does that's interesting, this Peter, is he, he lets a lot of the other Anabaptists know, who are a lot of them on the run. You remember when I talked to you about the Anabaptists? Conrad Grable, he died of natural causes. But Felix Mons was drowned. Remember, they drowned him. George Blaurock, they beat him severely with rods, and then later they burned him at the stake. So to be an Anabaptist wasn't to be safe. The Anabaptists are migrating peoples looking for a place to live, this Peter Gnesius says to them, come to Poland. Come to Poland. Nobody's going to mess with you up here. Come up here and you'll be safe. And so a lot of Anabaptists start coming there from Moravia and other places. And in 1556, we have the Synod of Sisemen. And at that synod, Peter is excommunicated for non-Trinitarian beliefs. So we can definitely say before 1556 he already had discovered 
that God is one and not three in one. He believed in quite a number of other things, uh, pacifism, egalitarianism, no participation in government. He didn't believe in the serf mentality where you have a landowner and the serfs working the land. He was a revolutionary radical thinker. He became the leader of the Polish Brethren, the Ecclesia Minor in Poland. He died in October 15, 1573 of the plague. By then, the Polish Brethren were already started. The Polish Brethren are a Unitarian group in Poland that survived for about a century. A gentleman called George Showman from, lived from 1530 to 1591. He wrote a letter to his grandchildren that I have here for you about a catechism. And just look at how this guy, this is, this is a sample of one of the people from this congregation, how they thought, and how he talked to his grandchildren as an old man as he's getting ready to die. If you want to find out these things yourselves, there is my second catechism, which I compiled from Holy Scripture privately for you. It explains about the Most High God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, man, only begotten Son of God, our Lord, who are to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. May your understanding of God be that which we have from the prophets of Israel and not after the fashion of the Lutherans and the Papists. So this is how these Polish brethren talked. You have God Almighty, and then you have the man Christ Jesus. And when you try to get your truth, get it from the prophets of Israel, not from the Lutherans and the Papists. In 1574, a little work came out called The Confession of the Faith of the Congregation Assembled in Poland. In other words, this is our statement of beliefs. If they had a website, this is what would be under the Statement of Beliefs tab. And it says, The little and afflicted flock in Poland, which is baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, sends greetings to all those who thirst after eternal salvation, praying most earnestly that grace and peace may be shed upon them by the one and supreme God and Father through his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is crucified. Jesus, our mediator before the throne of God, is a man who was formerly promised to the fathers by the prophets and in later days was born of the seed of David, whom God his Father has made Lord and Christ, by whom he created the new world to the end that after the supreme God we should believe in him, adore and invoke him, hear his voice, imitate his example, and find in him rest to our souls. So that was the confession of this church in Poland in the 1500s, specifically 1574. In 1579, we get Fausto Sosini showing up in Poland and joining the church and working with them there, although they had some sort of disagreement over baptism, and Fausto never officially joined the church, although he sojourned among them. These Polish brethren were industrious people. They started an, an academy called the Rakovian Academy. And this was a training ground. They had at its height a thousand students at this university. This college lasted for 36 years and it published tons of material on a variety of subjects, but especially on the idea that God is one. This aroused the Jesuits. I haven't spoken to you about the Jesuits. I'm going to talk to you about them later when we talk about the Counter-Reformation, which is what the Catholics did in response to the Lutheran Reformation and so on. 
So hold that thought on what the, who the Jesuits are. But suffice it to say, they were a very loyal group of Catholic Christians who were very, very against any kind of non-Catholic belief and group and were desirous to shut them down. Okay, And so this publishing house is doing a lot of good, but it's also attracting a lot of attention. At the time, during the uh, 1600s, in the early 1600s, in uh, Rakow, Poland, they had about 300 churches successfully planted there. And in 1605, they came out with the Rakovian Catechism. A catechism is a list of questions and answers for instruction in the faith. Okay, so a question might be like, who is the one God, the creator of heaven and earth? And you say, the answer would be something like, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there would be another question and another answer. And so this is the title page of the Rakovian Catechism, the 1818 edition of it, printed in London. I just told you this came out in 1605. So this document is wildly successful. They, they come up with it in 1605 in Poland, written in Polish or Latin, I'm not sure. But uh, it was written in Poland by Fausto Sassini's grandson, a guy named Andreas Wisowadius and Joachim Stegman. It's a large, detailed exposition, and it's, they say it's by the brethren in Poland and Lithuania who confess one God, the Father. It was reprinted as late as 1818 in London, and then Spirit and Truth Fellowship International, under the leadership of John Shaneheit, typed it back in and reprinted it, and now it's available on Amazon today, not just from him, but through some others who have done similarly. And so this book is actually, oddly, very accessible today <laughs> in an English translation. It's kind of an old English translation. It's 1818, but it's the sort of English that we would be able to readily recognize and read ourselves. This book is banned in many countries, including England. Owning this book could get you the death penalty. That's how hot it is. If you touch this, you can get burned. The contents have eight arguments against why Jesus is not God, and it discusses nearly every passage bearing on the topic, although it has a very reverent attitude for Christ. It's not bashing Christ. It's just trying to stay biblical with how Christ is described. It rejected the doctrine of original sin. It said humans were created mortal. It rejected propitiatory atonement, which is uh, the idea that Jesus died in our place, suffering the penalty that we deserved from God. They denied that belief. And they said that God's knowledge was limited to necessary truths, but not what might happen. So God's knowledge is not exhaustive of the future, but only partial. I should mention this. As I'm going through all these different groups and all these different movements, I don't, I'm not saying that you should necessarily agree with any of them specifically. You know, you, you figure out who you are, you know what I mean? But I, I'm just describing them one after the other. Some of them we're going to be really close to, and some of them we're going to be like, those people are crazy. And, and that's fine, and, and we just need to just kind of join me on the ride, and we'll, and we'll get through it and see all these, this, this stuff, and it'll help us understand the way the world is today. I'm kind of camping out 500 years ago, for, for the past few weeks here. 
but I'm going to start moving forward pretty quickly. The next thing I'm just about to say is, is in the 1600s. Okay, so that's progress, right? Uh, next time we're going to look at some of the big picture stuff. Okay, we've been looking at very minute details. Claude of Savoy, um, Adam Pastor, Michael Servetus, very minute details. Now we're looking at a movement, the Polish Brethren, which is a bigger movement. Then we're going to look at the Hungarian Unitarians. But then next time we're going to look at France, England. You know, the, some of these bigger macroscopic perspectives to help us situate everything. And then Matt's going to tell us about Asian Christianity, which is going to be all kinds of fun. So anyhow, 1611 in Warsaw, persecution starts happening. A guy named Jan Tishkovich refuses to swear in court by the triune God. He won't say, I swear in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He won't do it because he doesn't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Trinitarian sense. And so they accused him of throwing down a crucifix. And they convicted him of blasphemy. And his punishment was they pierced his tongue, they cut off his hands and feet, and then executed him. Yeah, it's still that crazy world, even in the 1600s. Not much has changed, huh? A, a lady named Catherine Fogel, an attractive woman of considerable talent, was publicly mutilated and burned at the stake for the crime of belie believing in the existence of one God. In 1638, we really hit the end of this uh, college, this university, this Wachovian Academy. In 1638, some students from the academy stoned a cross. Okay, so you have a wooden cross set up somewhere outside, and the students come, and they don't believe in the cross, or they don't like the symbol of the cross, or, or what it represents as being maybe considered as an idol or something like that. And so they stone the cross. They don't stone a person. They stone a wooden cross, an ill-advised activity in such a time. The parents of the boys publicly apologized and offered restitution. They, they offered payment for the cross. The Jesuits, who, were, who had been actively trying to find reason to shut this thing down, seized the opportunity and finally convinced the government to shut down this college. It's no good as training radicals. It's bad for Poland. And so it dies in 1638, the Rakovian Academy. In the 1650s, war breaks out, and thousands of Cossacks, Tartars, Poles, and Austrians, and Romanians fought in the land. The land is just overrun with these different tribes of people who are fighting with each other. The king of Sweden invades Poland, and the Polish king Casimir gets kicked out. The king of Sweden required everyone to pledge obedience. Everyone agreed. Though the brethren, the Polish brethren, the Unitarians, wanted nothing to do with the politics. Somehow, Casimir returned and drove out the Swedish forces. Most of them abandoned their pledges and joined the rebellion. However, the Polish brethren, once again, did not want to get involved and participate in this rebellion. As a result, they were seen as traitors, and the others persecuted him. And so this is King Casimir here, who said, In the name of the Lord... Amen. We, Jan Casimir, by the grace of God, King of Poland, although the public law always forbade the Anabaptist sect to exist and propagate in our dominions, yet by some fatal misfortune, the said sect, which rejects the pre-eternity of the Son of God, began not long ago since to spread in our dominions. 
we do ordain that if anyone of this kind is found who dares or attempts to profess, spread, or preach this sect, or to pre protect or support it or its advocates, shall without delay be capitally punished, yet desiring to show our clemency. Oh, he's got so much clemency. If any such person is found who will not renounce this sect, we allow him three years in order to sell his property, etc. During this time, however, he is forbidden to perform any exercises of this sect or to take part in any public offices subject to the penalties above. What was the penalty above? Death. Right? On July 20, 1658, the Polish parliament expelled the brethren as well with the following words. The toleration granted to dissenters from the church does not legally extend to Unitarians whom they call Anabaptists, this being a new heresy. Therefore, all who within such a limited time will not embrace the Roman Catholic religion shall be banished out of Poland, allowing, however, two years to sell their estates, whether real or personal. Do you know what happens if everybody knows that within two years' time you have to leave the country and you're trying to sell your house? Nobody's going to buy your house. They're going to wait until you leave without selling it, and they're just going to walk right in and take it. I mean, this is, this is some harsh persecution here. This is the response of one of these Polish brethren to what was going on in 1658 when they were kicked out of Poland. The charge is that we are enemies of the pre-eternity of the Son of God, that we deprive him of this. But we attribute to the Son of God whatever Holy Writ clearly attributes to him. We're just trying to be biblical. In the most excellent and the fullest way that can be conceived and that can be, he is truly the only begotten Son of God the Father, with a name that is exalted above every name. If we cannot reconcile the pre-eternal generation of both the Father and the Son, if we cannot comprehend how they both be co-eternal, both begetter and begotten, if these things pass our understanding, if we do not see how they agree, is this a crime to be paid for by death? Our case is one of steadfastness, of faith in God, of escape from papal superstition and tyranny, and in general, the desire for a good conscience. We refuse to desert to the enemy, choosing the command of God rather than the inventions of men, Christ rather than the Pope. Our conscience is good, bound to no wickedness, crime, or disgrace, dangerous to no one, friendly to all, proved by an endeavor to lead a blameless life simply devoted to the one God and the oracle of God. So as we go into exile, no sure and safe home presents itself. Shut out of our land, we find almost the whole world closed against us. We have no way to support ourselves in exile. Our property is left behind. Our money was seized by soldiers or consumed as we led our wandering life. Our estates and farms are left behind, ruined, wasted, and despoiled, ravaged by fire and sword. The frightful prospect of an unjust exile drove many of the more wealthy to defection. They just gave up the faith. They didn't have to leave. They professed themselves ready to die, but with wives and children, they could not bring themselves to incur the hazard of the most wretched poverty. Those who had the greater abundance deserted Christ. Those who had the more courage followed him. For those certainly desert Christ who abandoned conscience. Rather than abandon that, we have determined to give up all else. Quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, what would you do if suddenly 
your belief was outlawed by the government, whether local or, or national, and you were given two years to leave, would you give up your faith? Would you put your house on the market? I mean, it's, it's a really difficult situation these guys found themselves in. So the exiles, they went to a number of different places. They went to the Duchy of Prussia, to ne the Netherlands, to Transylvania, uh, to Silesia, Moravia, Russia, and even to England. In, uh, from 1665 to 1668, Andreas Wisowadius, that's the grandson of Faustus Socinus, who is the guy that has named Socinian, that these guys are named after, he got the library of the Polish brethren called Unitarians, it's a, a collection of books, published in Amsterdam. That's from 1665 to 1668. The first volume included the writings of Fausto Socini, Fausti Socini Sciences, Opera Omnia. And I won't read the rest of it in my crummy Latin accent. So this is a a collection of books about the Polish Brethren that gets printed in Amsterdam in the middle of the 1600s and that very high-powered intellectual people end up reading. Let me just give you a few names. This is how they understand and learn about the Sicinian beliefs. John Locke, Voltaire, Isaac Newton, they all had copies of these books, the Polish Brethren, in their libraries and read them. Now let's move on to Transylvania. The Transylvanian uh, 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 Unitarians. From 1562, the, the Turks had overran Transylvania. And ironically, there was more peace under the rule of the heathen than in the Christian nations. Kind of funny. This gentleman right here is credited with establishing the church in Transylvania, the Unitarian Church in Transylvania, a guy named Ferenc David, or David. I'm going to call him David, although that's his last name. He was born sometime around 1510, and he died in 1579. Born in Hungary, he studied in Wittenberg. Who else was in Wittenberg? Martin Luther. So this Hungarian studied in Wittenberg, possibly under Luther, or under one of the other professors there, and at Frankfurt. He became a bishop, and he believed in the doctrines of John Calvin. He was appointed, in, back in Hungary now, he was appointed the court preacher to John Sigismund Zapolia, this gentleman. In 1565, David doubted the doctrine of the Trinity because of no scriptural basis for the personality of the Holy Spirit. In 1566, he started preaching the one God, and he appealed to Parliament. This man right here is John Sigismund, who lived from 1540 to 1571, and he promoted religious toleration. Now, to you and, and, and me, religious toleration is sort of a no-brainer. It's sort of like an assumed right of our time, a human right, right? That's how we would possibly put it. In their time, religious toleration was unheard of. So this guy is way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. And so he starts allowing for some religious toleration. 
1568, he issues the Edict of Torda, promoting religious freedom, and he supports the establishment of the Unitarian Church by Ferenc David. He wanted to open dialogue and sponsor debates for Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Unitarians. And he gave tolerance, uh, but not a legal guarantee, to Jews, Orthodox Christians, which I haven't talked much about, and Muslims in his land. He was the first and only Unitarian king in history that we find. John Sigismund. In 1568, as I mentioned, David founded this Unitarian church, and the people survived and thrived here in Transylvania longer than anywhere else in the world. In fact, they're still there. Here is their 12-point confession of faith. We believe in one almighty God, in Jesus Christ, Son of God, by the Virgin Mary, in one Holy Spirit, the power of God, in one holy Christian church. We believe that kings and magistrates are ordained of God. We believe in holy baptism in water. By it, we are initiated into Christ, become an effective member of the church, and declare a profession in Christ and desire to amend our ways. <gasps> that the communion of the supper is a remembrance of Christ, not necessarily the body and blood of Christ, but the remembrance of Christ. The human race we believe to be under sin, but we can be justified by the grace of God through that grace, we receive remission of sins. Faith invokes keeping the commandments of Christ. I like that one. Faith involves keeping the commandments of Christ. It's a good one. We look for the glorious advent of our Savior Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body, both of the just and the unjust. We believe that the faithful will be granted to be with Christ and to sit down with him wherever his throne will be. There shall be eternal happiness, and we shall ever be with the Lord. So their 12-point confession. In 1571, a new king, a Roman Catholic, succeeded John Sigismund, named Stephen Bathory. And in 1572, David, who was instrumental all through this in starting this church and in converting the king and so on, he denied or refused to invoke Jesus in prayer. He did not see a need to invoke Jesus in prayer, but to pray to God the Father. As a result, he was tried and imprisoned because, look, there's a new ruler. Your religious toleration is now out the window. And so in 1579, he died in prison. Early on, the church had 425 parishes. In 1658, which we already mentioned, that's when all the Polish brethren, the Polish Unitarians got kicked out. Guess where a lot of them went? to Transylvania, to the Unitarian Church there, which was surviving. A man named Andreas Wissowatius Jr., the great-great-grandson of Fasto Sosini, came and taught at the Unitarian College in Cluj in the 1730s. Then there was a man named, this is really hard for me to pronounce, but Mihaly Lombard de Zintabraham. I don't know if I got that right or not, but he was from 1683 to 1758. He was a Hungarian Unitarian bishop who was instrumental in his time that he became the director of the John Sigismund Unitarian Academy uh, while Wissowadius was there teaching. And he is the one who wrote the uh, statement of belief for their church that they still have. Summa Universi Theologiae Christianae Secundum Unitarios published posthumously 
1782. And so the Unitarian Church of Transylvania still survives to this day. I'm not sure what their beliefs are. I went on their website, I checked them out, but wouldn't you know it, it's all written in Hungarian. <laughs> and it's kind of an old school website that uses pictures for words to navigate, and Google Translate couldn't help me very much. So <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is what I know about them, is that uh, they're based in Cluj, Transylvania, and Romania. They're mostly Hungarians. They are an officially recognized religion in Romania. They have bishops rather than a congregational government. They have a bishop, uh, Episcopal polity. In 2009, their bishop was a gentleman named Ferenc Benzetti. Ferenc is the first name of the guy who started the church. It would make sense why you would call your kid after that name. The Unitarian Church of Trans Transylvania has, uh, there's, there's a Protestant theological institute in Cluj, and they have Lutheran faculty, and they, I think they have Catholic faculty, and they have Unitarian faculty, and they each have a place in that university. This is modern times. We're talking 21st century now. They run the John Sigismund Unitarian Academy, which was founded in 1554. They've got a website. It's, for, it's not a college. It's for younger kids, this academy. In 2002, there were 66,846 Romanian citizens of Unitarian faith, but the church officials say there's more like 80 to 100,000 of their people. In 2006, there were 141 congregations in Romania and 110 Unitarian priests, mostly in Transylvania. So it's uh, about the end of our time. Next time, we'll look at some big picture stuff. And uh, thanks for coming tonight. Just a couple of quick notes before we close out here. First of all, I did want to mention that I evaluated the Sicinian view of atonement, the idea that Jesus is our example, but that he did not die in any way to propitiate sin in my paper called Why Did Jesus Die? So if you're curious about that, take a look, and I, I do actually cite the Sicinians as well so you get a grasp of what their view is about Jesus dying. Take a look at my paper called Why Did Jesus Die? It's under articles on restitutio.org. Scroll down to the second part of it, category number three, moral exemplar theory. I have a link right to that section of the essay in the show notes for this episode if you're interested in following up with that a little bit more. Also, we received a comment on last week's episode, Biblical Unitarian Trailblazers of the 16th Century, from Owen, and he writes, Sean, thank you for this. It will be on my Facebook wall today. Well, Owen, I'm glad to hear that you're sharing the episode. And if you would like to share this episode, please do so on whatever social media you use so that others can hear about this incredibly important group of people. I mean, I didn't even touch on this in the lecture, but these people are, by and large, the reason why we have separation of church and state today in America and why there is so much religious toleration. I know that's kind of like a big statement I just made there, but you can trace it all back to the Polish Brethren, to the Sicinians, to their library of writings that ended up getting translated, getting into the hands of some key thinkers in the 1700s who then influenced America's framers of the Constitution. So, this movement, although obscure and fairly unknown, is actually extremely influential in our world today. So stay tuned for more information about them in future episodes, but we're going to take a change of tack for next time and look at some big-picture Reformation history 
on the continent and kind of catch up the story where I left it off with Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and press it forward a little bit. So stay tuned for that. For this Sunday, I've got an exciting interview for you with Pastor Alan Kane. So I hope you can listen to that as well, because he has a fascinating, very encouraging story about what God has done in his life and with his church, Lawrenceville Church of God. So uh, check that out. That'll be out this Sunday. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.